You're listening to Festival Grasp. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Shanae. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. Reading and Leeds Festival announced all male headliners for their 2021 lineup. United by Dance, camping concert to be held at Original Woodstock site. Tomorrowland Around the World wins FWA Award. Netflix releasing documentary on disastrous Woodstock 99. Micro Movement Study finds it is nearly impossible not to move to music, especially EDM. And first up, what is the future of music festivals? Oh my goodness, this is a question that is raging, raging, raging everywhere, Shanae. We all want to know what the heck is going to be happening. So this article here by Caitlin White via Uproxx, she states in here, Alan Scott, who is the co-producer of San Francisco's Outside Lands Festival and head of concerts and festivals at Another Planet Entertainment, says, like everyone else, we were consumed with the news cycle towards the end of March and beginning of April, trying to understand what could happen and what may or may not be allowed. We looked at holding backup dates in October and had given ourselves a deadline that if it was allowed to happen this year, we felt that we could sell the festival in two months. But by the middle of May, we realized for certain that Outlands wasn't going to happen this year. Now, that sounds like a very common story with many of the festivals. And of course, we know now that a lot have been canceled and they're all out, unfortunately, with a few exceptions. Now, March is when most music festivals really began to take a hard look at what the future might hold for their business model because it started with Coachella, who was the first to cancel and then say that they were going to postpone. And then eventually, you know, in mid-May, they said, no, we're not even going to have the fall one. So a lot of other festivals got super worried. And Zale Schoenberg, the founder and art director of Portland, Oregon's Pickathon Festival, said it was really scary from a promoter's point of view. There's not a lot of margin of error for arts organizations like ours, private or public. It felt really uncertain if we were going to survive and if a lot of different events and promoters we could work with would actually survive too. In the best of times, we have a very small break-even profit margin. How in the world are we going to possibly come out of this on the other end? Shanae, thoughts? So, you know, as we've seen many companies try to manage the future of festivals, we've seen drive-in events, which seem to be successful as long as we can track if COVID numbers have changed or gone up, because that is the biggest concern is safety around that. We've also seen Elements Festival in Pennsylvania hosting much smaller gatherings at 250 attendees, but they're doing on-site COVID testing. They're making attendees two days before they arrive, get tested for COVID at certain sites. And then the day they arrive, they have on-site testing. So you're not actually allowed to leave your car and enter the festival grounds until you've been tested a second time and have been proven that you do not have COVID. And I think that that's really the future of festivals because the only way that you can keep people safe when there's that incubation period that you're not going to test positive for COVID or you're not going to show symptoms of it, there's ways to manage it more so. But then that creates privatized companies doing COVID testings. And it means that it's not free, but then do people build it into the cost of their music festival? And it's a large playing field right now. And I think people just have to be really innovative and try their new ideas because the future is open to so many possibilities. 
Absolutely. Listen, there's more quotes I'm going to read here, and I'm going to start with this one. This is from Seth Fien, the founder and creative director of Pygmalion Festivals in Illinois. He says, there's no predictive measure here because it's not just enough to say we can do a festival again. The economy that surrounds it is still an actuarially and predictive measurement. You put down an offer for an artist predicated on what you believe you can sell in tickets, and there's not going to be a way to do that for 2020 or 2021, potentially. How do you know how many people are going to come to a show? There's no possible scenario. And I think he nails it there because I think what's really scaring people is the fact, well, look, so Glastonbury is on for 2021. And they say, of course, a lot of people didn't choose refunds or carrying over their tickets. So they don't have a lot of tickets to sell. So they are going to be able to weather the storm and then still have an event. However, that's not a new influx of cash, right? So any other costs or things that they spent on this year they will have to take that as an expense loss on their profit and loss statement, right? So I'm wondering, there's more here in the story because while there have been a few, you know, socially at distance live shows, for most festival settings, those kinds of drastic measures, they're either too difficult to enforce or people might not choose to go there. But more than that, the events might not find them financially worth it because they need a certain amount of people to break even. And then Fain goes on to say, it's really devastating to see the effects of all of this. You can't really rationalize and be like, well, you could do X, Y, or Z when it's literally impossible to gather without putting people in danger and worry that people are going to think that, you know, even if they're coming to an event, they're going to be in danger. They don't know if it's going to be well policed or enforced or whatever, whatever you might have it. So he goes on to say, I've enjoyed watching the pivot some people have made. And I think the driving concept is pretty cool. It's not something that I'd do as a promoter, but I'm happy that it's making people happy. As long as people are outside and thoroughly distanced from each other, I think we know COVID-19 isn't a ballistic missile. But if you gather in spaces with close quarters, it is going to spread. This is another gentleman. I'm not sure if festivals work because festivals have to sell a certain number of tickets to break even. I couldn't see Coachella or any of the big festivals around the world surviving with a reduced capacity because it would be about 10% of what they normally get unless they charge 10 times what they would normally get. And that makes a very good point, Sinead, because when I'm looking at it from a business perspective, and I think this is what we're asking, right? What is the future of musical festivals? We're, we're, also, we're, we're literally talking about it from a financial point of view because we know people want to go. We know people will go. But the question is, are as many people as are needed to keep these massive uh, businesses afloat, these music, these, these fantastic music festivals, is there going to be enough for them to come back to in terms of everything that, that, that goes along with it? I mean, I, I don't know. It's so much in the air. The question we're trying to answer, Shanae, is what is the future of music festivals? Are we answering that? Is this article answering that? Do we even have any answers? No, unfortunately, we don't have any answers and only time will tell. But I personally think that we'll see a rise in grassroots festivals because having a smaller capacity is something that they are used to. And when you have a large festival that has 60,000 people, you know, it's very possible that by 2021, we're not going to be allowed that capacity in one place. So to, let's say, reduce the capacity, even 50% would just be such a like a dramatic hit to that festival. They may not break even. They may not have a reason to produce it. So I don't know. Look at your local grassroots festivals is my tip. Yeah, I, I do think that you're right. Maybe the large ones won't survive. Potentially smaller festivals will proliferate because they'll be easier to put on at the last minute. They'll be easier for people to travel to if there's any future restrictions. 
And I just think it'll be more comfortable for everybody. And that could very well work. We could see a resurgence of the smaller festivals, which I don't particularly think is a bad thing. I don't think they're as well produced in terms of being aesthetically majestical as some of the best festivals in the world. But in terms of community and the ability to put on a great show and to have a great vibe, I think that's definitely doable. I will end it with this thing, Shanae, and that is that there is this new initiative happening. It's called Clubhouse Global. It's a streaming platform that prioritizes social impact and democratic compensation to provide support for musicians, DJs, and other live events, and hospitality workers who have lost a bulk of their income and ability to work during COVID-19. And I think that's a really fantastic movement or initiative because essentially it's a virtual dance floor hosted on Zoom weekly, Saturday streams at 2 p.m. And the subscription tiers range from $4.99 to $9.99 and then to $24.99. It has a robust chat community. And apparently the Clubhouse Global has been able to create a hub for music obsessives to remain safely in isolation while connecting with each other digitally and supporting musicians, DJs, and the many charities that the organization encourages uh, donations for. And I think this combination of having a small festival with a virtual presence is going to be the ticket. And the reason I say that, Shanae, is because this initiative is great, but there's more and more examples of wonderful things being done from a live streaming point of view. And we were going to go there anyway. It's just been accelerated. And we talked about Tomorrowland and a few other festivals that have done an amazing job with their uh, virtual environments because they were already designing their physical festivals like that. They were already building 3D models. So for them to pivot was just a very easy thing. And I think what surprised is what well, I think what surprised Tomorrowland, I believe it's going to have surprised them, is how much money they can make virtually. They made almost 17, well, they were selling, they, they sold a million passes at, at 24 US dollars. So do the math, right? That's a lot of money. And I, I'm wondering whether, I mean, they see the writing on the wall. So they're looking at it. Why don't we have an exclusive boutique festival for the people that want to pay? Everyone gets tested. It's smaller so we can manage it properly. This is the VIP exclusive and all the DJs are playing for them, right? So all the big name brand DJs, they show up. However, the stage is being live video viewed to everyone out in this massive virtual live performance production. And I think they could really make a ton of money, both from the physical festival and from a virtual online festival. I think I nailed it. I think the future of music festivals is a combination of live events and exclusive physical events. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. The corporate world does it often for conferences. They'll do a hybrid event, um, virtual and in person. So I think it only makes sense to allow people the opportunity who maybe, you know, couldn't travel to the festival in general or couldn't afford the festival itself, but could afford the digital version. I think they'll, they'll see a, an expansion in profit. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our Music Festival newscast and subscribe to our Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. Once again, another festival shows a blatant lack of care around the curation of their talent lineup. After Reading and Leeds Festival announced their headliners and some of their acts, there's been an uproar on social media about the lack of representation of female artists. Guys, the more we let this happen, the more it will continue to happen. There are plenty of female artists popular enough to headline a music festival, ones who are relevant to this year and who are not just some one-hit wonder from 2016. 
For anyone who says, if you don't like the lineup, then don't go, you're simply ignoring the problem, which will continue if everyone remains quiet about the lack of non-male representation within the headline slots at festivals and in the music industry as a whole. Totally agree with that, Shanae. I mean, we've been talking about it a lot and I'm just, I'm glad it's getting so much press. I'm glad we're talking about it because the fact of the matter is there's no shortage of female artists out there that deserve billings. And by the way, this festival is a pop music festival. So there are plenty of pop music female stars out there. And it's an indefensible position for a festival in the decade of 2020 saying we want to have an all male lineup. I mean, I don't, I don't know where to go. I'm a, I'm a man. I don't know anywhere to go with this one, Sinead. All right. Next up, United by Dance camping concert to be held at original Woodstock site. So tickets for the 18 hour long show are being sold on September 12th at 10 a.m. So grab them fast because I'm sure they'll sell out. The promoter is providing a new opportunity for music lovers to get their fix of live performances before the end of the summer. Their United by Dance concert is slated for September 26th at Yasgur Road, the site of the original Woodstock. Now, United by Dance promises 18 continuous hours of all things house tech and techno. It's scheduled between the hours of 3 and 9 a.m. and attendees will be treated to an intense mega laser show and live art installation and will have the option to camp by their cars in order to make it through the entire night of festivities. Of course, uh, the festival says in order to keep all ticket holders safe, it's an 18 plus event and it will enforce all the CDC and WHO recommendations as it precludes to COVID-19, including social distancing, mask wearing and temperature checks and a mobile ordering system for food vendors, though everyone will have the option to bring their own food and beverage to the event. There will also be incentive for attendees to arrive with recent COVID-19 test results. And I imagine that might what make them skip the line or is that like VIP line? What is that? Anyway, what do you think about this, Shanae? They're promising the moon at the old Woodstock site, a camping driving concert. Their poster is amazing. I've never seen this on a poster before, Shanae. They have this massive row of cars that, that go into a V formation all the way into the background of the image. It's incredible. What do you think, Shanae? Would you go? Would you not? Um, I think, you know, they're really trying to combine that camping festival vibe with the new trend of driving events. And we'll definitely see how successful it is after the event. You know what? Driving events are becoming more and more successful. And if you can put the two together and you can have a safe and, and distanced event, why not? give as much back to the community from the traditional event that you could. Get tested and bring that COVID test there and skip the line, baby. Tomorrowland has won the August rendition of Favorite Website Award. This shouldn't come as a shock to anyone who watched Tomorrowland's 2020 virtual production. They set the bar so high for the next festival producers. What they produced was groundbreaking. And with 200 employees working on it, their efforts definitely paid off. What do you think, Mario? Oh my God, they deserve to win it. Absolutely fantastic production that they put on. Once you see it, you will know what we're talking about. And I think it's well-deserved. These guys have proven that they are one of the top musical events in the entire world and potentially the history of the world. And more than that, I think they've laid the ground for the future of how these things are going to be. We will have physical events. No one's going to ever say that we won't have those again. The future of music festivals it is this virtual landscape 
or a VR world like the multiverse that Burning Man put on or other permutations. But first of all, I want to congratulate them. But I think, yes, we're looking at the future leaders in this industry and that couldn't be anybody better. All right, next up, Netflix releasing documentary on disastrous Woodstock 99. Now, of course, Shanae, if you think back to the Woodstock of 1969, this isn't it. This, this is the one that they tried to recreate in 99. But it turned out to be absolutely disastrous. And Netflix is here to tell you about it. So it says uh, here in this article by Marla Karanji via EDM Tunes, it says, for the children of the 60s, Woodstock brings up peace and love vibes and anti-war sentiments. For children of the 90s, it's much different. Looking back on photos, you can see garbage everywhere, fires, riots, people lighting cars on fire, arrests, and concert goers carrying stolen items from Lowe's to the campsite. Now, the question she asked, how did one extremely famous festival go from good vibes to not so good vibes? Perhaps the festival in the 60s wasn't as peaceful as we all thought. In reality, bands played well after their scheduled set times. Two people were run out, were ran over by a tractor and an anarchist group ripped down a fence so that fans could arrive for free. This is only some of the things that happened, even with the huge mishaps. The festival still got a positive reputation. Overall, the crowd was there to come together to make a change in a time where so much was happening in the world. However, fast forward to 1999, poor planning, amongst other things, causing things to go very wrong. Security was lax. The infrastructure was not ready. The magic of the original Woodstock simply could not be replaced. And Shanae, I think here, you know, the distinction she's trying to make is that we have this, this romantic view of the 1969 festival. But of course, a lot of things went wrong there uh, because of the so-called anarchists that tore the fences down. But really, honestly, they had way more people show up than they were anticipating. So, And they had a very porous perimeter. So things were going to happen anyways. They didn't have enough facilities. People were you know, defecating on the hillsides. And, you know, there was definitely no harm reduction being practiced. So there was a lot of uh, overdoses and people feeling ill and, and uh, having to be rushed off to hospital eventually. So it wasn't in terms of, you know, successful festivals, what we would want to see. However, it did get a rosy picture because it was a, during a time of cultural movement. So it, it took on uh, significance that maybe is not given to this 99 rehashing of the Woodstock original. But even more than that, in this Netflix documentary, which is going to be coming out soon, we're going to find out exactly if there was any cultural status to this Woodstock 99. Why did they do it? Was it simply to make money? Or did they actually figure that there was another reason for them to revive the cultural shift that happened during the late 60s? What do you think, Shanae? Yeah, I'm really excited to find out. I think that this sounds like a great documentary and I think it'll be used as a tool for people who are interested in planning festivals or people who are festival organizers themselves already. Because just like Fire Festival, you can take all these fails and you can now know what not to do. Absolutely. I read an article on the seven, seven worst disastrous festivals and I think we should make an entire episode in our deep dives about that. University of Oslo professor. Alexander Jensenis conducted a research study to examine which music induced the most micromovements in their participants in the ways of a competition, the Norwegian Championship of Standstill, a competition where participants stood still for six minutes with and without music. The winner of the competition recorded 
minute oscillations of 3.9 millimeters per second. Even they could not stand completely still. A variety of genres like Norwegian folk music, traditional Indian music, electronic music, and more were played. But it comes at no surprise to myself that EDM induced the most micro-movements. Jensnes explains that the song builds up, lifts, and then drops. This makes us move with increasing amounts of energy on the dance floor. Yeah, I mean, come on. This is no. This is a no-brainer. Of course, EDM music makes you shake your booty. But, you know, Shanae, one of the things that I miss uh, and I have missed over this summer and the pandemic lockdown is the ability to go out on a dance floor and uh, uh, and shake it. Now, uh, of course, I do that privately sometimes. It's just not the same. It's not the same. It's nice to be amongst others, to feel the energy, to, to hear, hear the music live and to really be caught up in the, in the, in the entire um, ambiance of your setting. And so I'm really uh, wanting to get back to that. But I, I really love this study. And the style of the mixing of the music is what he's describing where it builds up, lifts and drops. Because I know for me, like if you go to a deep house set, it doesn't really it doesn't really follow the same process. And a lot of DJs DJ differently. They don't some of them keep you moving. Some of them make you move really fast and slow you down, then pick it back up and then slow you down. Definitely, I think that people think of that big room or that mainstream style of EDM when you hear, you know, the song lifts and then builds up and then drops. But a lot of different genres have a similar process. It's just in a different frequency and in a different speed. So it doesn't sound the same, but a lot of electronic music has that. And I think that the professor makes a great point in expressing that's kind of why people move the way they do to that genre of music. But I also think that it has something to do with the frequencies of the sounds because you're dealing with a lot of like synthetic sounds um, and people are are choosing the frequencies to use. And we know that um, at different ages and different species, so let's say animals, dogs, cats, hear different frequencies. So I wonder if it also has something to do with that. Wow. Dr. Shanae coming to you on Festival Grasp. Well, listen, everyone, we hope that you have an amazing time on the next dance floor that you get onto. Please, please, please practice safe distancing and wear a mask if you need to. I know it's hard when you're sweating, but come on. We're here to help each other stay alive and our parents and everyone else in the world. Let's do this. We're all in this together. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector, so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye. Bye.